Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Anoush, and today we're starting a special series of episodes looking at the politics of climate change and what changes we might need to see in the UK if we are going to reduce our dependence on energy. Our co-host for this series is Philippa Nuttall. She's the Environment and Sustainability Editor at The New Statesman, and she's with me today. Hi, Philippa. Thanks so much for coming on. Hi, Anoush. Thanks for inviting me. Ahead of this new series that that we're doing on the climate crisis, we've got COP coming up and you've even had the government's COP spokesperson saying that she's not ready to drive an electric car and that perhaps we should all be (laughs) all stop rinsing our dishes before we stack our dishwashers. Some of the messaging has been a little lacklustre leading up to the event. Do you think our politicians have really got to grips with this crisis and what needs to get up to scratch ahead of the conference? Yeah, thanks, Anoush. It's interesting to hear very simple answers to the climate crisis, as you've just mentioned. I think it will come as no surprise to you to hear that the short answer is no. I don't think politicians anywhere have really got to to grips with the climate crisis. Part of that is because climate change is the original wicked problem. It's extremely difficult to tackle. It's very complex and it's very interconnected. And getting to grips with climate change means rethinking not just our energy systems, the way we heat our homes, cook our food, or whether or not we rinse our plates, perhaps, but also how we power our cars, our trains and planes, how we produce our food and how we produce and consume all the products that we use today. And this is clearly a massive task. I think politicians everywhere are struggling how we face up to this task and to make the decisions to enable the change and also how we finance it. And I think in the run up to COP, especially the UK as the host of COP26, really needs to accept the difficulty of this issue to face up to it. And I think also what would be great is if we could start treating it as a cross-party issue. So it's not a political hot potato that we can make one decision on and then an an opposing party comes up with a different policy. We really need to look at this together. This is a a problem that we all need to face together and to face up to how we do that. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned it being treated as a political issue. We're recording a week after Labour conference, we're in the thick of Conservative Party conference. And what we're likely to see are some competing pledges in terms of 
the climate crisis. We already know that there's going to be a pledge coming up from the government for a net zero carbon electricity system by 2035. And then you had Labour's pledge for £28 billion worth of investment in making the economy greener from Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor. Is it sort of an arms race of targets and spending or are these kind of commitments actually worthwhile? I think these kinds of commitments are clearly worthwhile, but I think as always, the devil is in the detail. And I think the UK in general has been very good at certain parts of the transition and they're very good at being very ambitious in terms of its emissions reductions. And the UK has potentially the biggest ambitions in the world to to cut carbon emissions by 78% by by 2035 compared to 1990 levels. But the devil is in the details. And and this is what we're missing, I think, from the government at the moment is the details exactly how we're going to get to net zero by 2050, how we're going to make sure that all the electricity is produced by clean energy. And and the government really now needs to come forward with these kinds of details. And is there anything that they have made progress on? Is there anything that they have pledged to do that is actually working out and is on the right track. The UK's move away from coal, it's impressive and speedy increase in offshore wind. And the fact it's also managed to grow the economy while cutting emissions are clearly achievements and we shouldn't deny those achievements. But at the same time, in other areas, it's been much less impressive. So for example, in terms of increasing the the energy efficiency of people's homes, in terms of insulation, the UK still has some of the most energy leakiest homes in Europe, which obviously in terms of the current gas crisis is a big issue, both in terms of emissions and in terms of cost. The UK has also made little progress in terms of cutting emissions from transport. Um, And perhaps one of the biggest questions over the UK's policies at the moment was its decision to slash overseas aid from 0.7 to 0.5% of GDP. And much of that was being spent on climate action in developing countries. So it's a very mixed picture from the UK. Yes, there has been progress, but there are also various areas whereby the government really needs to knuckle down and make progress and explain how the progress will be made and how it will be funded as well. What I think is really interesting is how much sort of people's day-to-day lives are likely to change. You've almost seen this shift in focus among some of the Conservative MPs who are perhaps more sceptical about spending and raising taxes to speaking about net zero as if it's something that sort of the working man and woman can't afford to do. The cost of electric cars, for example, or the idea of having heat pumps in homes or hydrogen boilers instead of your your usual combi boilers, and also the price of food as well. Do you think this is going to be a new sort of battleground within the Conservative Party in terms of how much net zero and the measures that are introduced to to try and reach it will actually affect people's day-to-day lives and whether or not it could possibly sort of affect the Conservative Party's popularity in the new red wall? That's a, a really good question. I think we need to take a step back and actually see that climate change is already having a massive impact on our lives. And I think until now, a lot of these impacts have been felt from extreme weather events by countries in the global south. But this year, the floods in Germany and Belgium, the fires and heatwaves in southern Europe, the US, Canada, and various extreme weather events in the UK as well, such as the various tube lines flooding, I think have really brought home the fact that climate change is happening its impacts are being felt now. And and the working men and women who you mentioned are often on the front line of these impacts because they live in perhaps housing, which is less well built. They have less money to perhaps build back after a house has been flooded. Um, And so everybody's lives are already changing and we can't deny that. And I think also getting to grips with climate change, yes, it will cost money and it may cause 
issues within the the Conservative Party or or, or cross parties. But ultimately, I think the story, the narrative that the the Conservatives and other parties need to get out there, that getting to grips with climate change can also mean changes for the better. Not only do we reduce greenhouse gas emissions if we, we get rid of petrol and diesel cars, we also reduce air pollution. And it's often people living in the poorest areas on the busiest roads who are subject to the worst air pollution where levels of asthma in children are highest. So it's a little bit of a false argument to say that the working men and women can't afford it because actually they're also being most impacted by what's happening. And it's now up to the government to look at different methods of funding, for example, as you say, heat pumps in homes, as has happened in other countries such as Norway or Belgium or Germany where many more houses have transitioned from gas boilers to heat pumps. Mm, Okay, it's really interesting because I think some of the things that I've been covering on the ground in the UK in terms of the impact of climate measures suggests to me that some of this stuff is sliding into culture war territory. You know, I was speaking to someone at City Hall who was saying low traffic neighbourhoods, for example, were an interesting sort of point where the culture war meets the climate war in terms of people being very unhappy that they're not allowed to drive down the usual roads in their neighbourhoods as they used to be. And there's been so many protests against them and some councils have even backed down. Now, that's government policy and Boris Johnson, to be fair, has stuck by it. But it sometimes means that sort of the Labour councils who are implementing them are the ones who are getting the flack. Do you see the way that the climate policies that we've just been discussing could tip into a kind of culture war issue. Yeah, I think they definitely could. And I think there is a real danger as well, as you've mentioned, in terms of it becoming almost a class issue as well. It's much easier, for example, I was talking to to somebody in Nantes, a French city last week. And so she was saying, for example, it's very easy in more affluent neighbourhoods where the roads are often wider to put in cycle lanes. But for example, in social housing areas, there's often less demand and therefore there's less attention and therefore we don't put the cycle lanes in place. And so it really has to, it has to be a just transition whereby we make sure that everybody in society benefits from these changes and also that the, the those who can most afford it bear the costs and those in society who are poorer, who have more difficulties in affording this change and have the government support to do so. And I think the transition in the 1980s, or the shock perhaps rather than a transition in the 1980s in the north of England, when coal mines and various other industries were cut, closed down rather abruptly, we can see the massive social impacts that that had and is potentially still having today. And so it's really important that both the government and businesses come forward now and start retraining people, reskilling people and making sure that people can work in the industries of tomorrow and are not stuck in the industries of the past and therefore don't benefit from the change that's happening. And how much do you think the the government is going to lean on people making individual lifestyle changes as part of its rhetoric? I know I mentioned dishwasher gate before. There is also the question of how many flights we should take, how many holidays we should go on, etc. I think behavioural change is clearly an important part of what has to happen. But there has to be a much bigger change than that. There has to be a systemic change. As I said at the beginning, when we started talking, the way we produce our food, the way we produce our goods, how we consume, these are all issues that have to change a systemic level not just on a, on an individual basis and I think there has to be a clear narrative so that people can understand what's happening and why the changes are being made and it's not just we're being asked to do something because somebody's told us to do it and I don't really understand why I have to do this 
And it has to be seen, I think, at all levels of society. So certain groups don't feel that they're having to change more than others. And thinking about the UK being the host of COP, and you've given us a really thorough assessment of what it's doing right and and where it's going wrong and where it's lagging behind. How does it compare to other countries? It's quite interesting. As we say, the UK has been more successful uh, than certain other countries and and is certainly very ambitious in terms of where it wants to go. But research that came out last month actually showed that only the tiny country of the Gambia is the only country in the world which is actually on track um, to meet the commitments that were made by leaders under the the Paris Climate uh, Agreement back in 2015. And so it's clear ahead of COP that every single country in the world needs to up its ambition um, and to pledge to do much more and also to actually set out a roadmap of how they're going to achieve their emissions cuts and not just a pledge but then not deliver. And what are we going to cover in this series of episodes and who are we going to hear from? So the next three episodes are going to be made in partnership with Smart Energy. So the first episode will be called Making a Movement and indeed there will be looking at behavioural change and that will be in conversation with Ruth Murick who is a researcher from the Netherlands. The second episode will be called Better Connections And this is going to be looking at the nitty gritty of infrastructure and what we really need to do to get infrastructure up to the level it needs to be to reduce emissions. And that will be in conversation with Adrian Joyce, who's head of the Brussels based Renovate Europe campaign. The fourth episode will be called Energy for All, and we'll take a look at fuel poverty, which is obviously a very key issue at the moment in terms of the the energy crisis, which we're experiencing and rising prices. And the last episode will be about green homes. And we'll look exactly as to what you've talked about in terms of how do we move from having homes which are heated by gas boilers to having more heat pumps? How do we afford that and how do we make it happen? And that will be with the Norwegian minister, Tony Tiller. I really wanted to ask you about your own coverage because you are the New Statesman's first environment and sustainability editor. I've worked at the New Statesman for a while, for seven years, and and I think I feel like there's never been more appetite from our readers for climate stories. How do you get our readers interested in these issues and how do you write about these things without conjuring up Armageddon, which can, of course, be off-putting? Yes, indeed. No, we're going to avoid conjuring up Armageddon. That's definitely one of my aims. (laughs) I think the way that we, we need to cover it is to base the articles in fact, to show what is happening. Climate change is happening. It's not something we can deny and it's not something we can ignore. Whether we like it or not, it's here and we need to do something about it. I think we need a clear narrative in terms of admitting that change is difficult. There are no easy answers, but at the same time, there can be benefits. Um, New jobs will be created, new industries will be created, new ways of living can be created. And it can be an exciting and an interesting time. I think also there's lots of interesting discussions to be had in terms of democracy. How do we make these decisions about our lives? Do the political structures that we have in place today actually, especially in countries like the UK or the US, where it's very much a two-party system, can we have a, a sort of a rational discussion whereby we all move forward together? Or do we need to also discuss new forms of democracy, such as citizens' assemblies, where we get a much bigger swathe of the population involved in, in the decisions, because ultimately they're going to affect everybody's lives. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12.
For our most recent issue of The New Statesman, you wrote a brilliant piece which was headlined The Power Trap, Why the Energy Crisis is a Crisis of Politics. And you confronted this idea of the global energy crisis, but why it's affecting the UK dramatically. Could you talk us through a bit about what you found when you reported that piece and what it says um, for the UK's energy security in the sort of short term? Yeah, sure. I think one of the, the, the key findings is a little bit what we've already discussed is the idea that the UK is very good at big projects. So for example, getting lots of wind turbines out there, that's a big project. It came forward with a an ambitious auctions program to make sure that the price of wind energy came down and lots could be constructed very quickly. And that's great. I think the UK is also very good at ambition, at setting out where it wants to be. It has the Climate Change Committee, which means that every couple of years, the UK's climate change plans are are investigated and a new carbon budget is put forward. Again, something which is very important to really track where the UK is going and what needs to happen next. I think where the UK has been successful is in terms of details and in terms of of perhaps having an impact on people's lives. We we touched on it before. Mm. So, for example, we say every Englishman's home is his castle. And perhaps that's part of the reason why in terms of insulating people's homes, discussing whether people should have a gas boiler or a heat pump is quite personal. Lots of people live in private housing in the UK. And so therefore, the idea of actually going in and telling people they need to change is perhaps more difficult to do than than in countries whereby a lot more people live in rented houses and therefore there's perhaps a bigger opportunity for that change without having an impact on, on people's lives. And so this is now, I think, a difficult question, but something that the government probably needs to get to grips with is more a kind of, this needs to happen, so how are we going to make it happen? We can't just go through insulating one house at a time. We need to do whole streets or whole villages. And how can we learn from other countries such as in the Netherlands, where certain projects like this have been carried out successfully and the energy transition therefore happens much quicker and it's to the benefit of people because ultimately it's not fun for anybody to live in a cold, damp house. So there are benefits on both sides and I think this is what needs to be worked out. And then how can we finance this? Working with private businesses, banks to work out more innovative ways to finance it so that people are not having to pay upfront out of their own pockets. Mm-hmm. And so when ministers are asked about people's gas bills going up on on TV and they say this is a global crisis, is that disingenuous? How much truth is there in that? And what could Britain have done to protect people's wallets, basically? before this crisis hit? The the gas crisis clearly is a, a global crisis. If we look at other European countries, France, Italy, for example, have come out with measures to help support the poorest in society and to try and keep down their gas bills. China has obviously got uh, its own energy crisis at the moment, which is having a knock-on effect um, in the rest of the world. And I think various things have happened at the same time and had a big knock-on effect so that we've ended up with this gas crisis. But clearly the UK could have actually sooner to, as we've already said, insulate people's homes, reduce the reliance on gas um, for heating, for cooking in homes. And the UK has been very slow to to move uh, in that direction. Thanks so much for joining us, Philippa. And I'm looking forward to listening to the next episodes. And we'll have special episodes every Tuesday for the next four weeks with our usual podcast with all of the team every Friday. Don't forget, subscribers to The New Statesman get a special ad-free version of the podcast delivered a day early. 
You've been listening to a special episode of the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague, Philippa Nuttall. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.